Father God, we just come before you, Lord, and we've prayed and we've worshiped, and here now we're allowing the spirit to move in and to bring the word, to bring the message, the glory, the, the truth, the exaltation to the body. And so we've recorded it and we're, we're leaving it for prosperity. And we know that you set the time and the place that men should live, that they might hear, repent, turn back and be healed. And so for those who are coming in by radio and podcast, we pray, my God, that you sanctify them into this moment, that you bring them in, my God, and may we be one in the spirit with you, completely unified in you in the spirit, completely unified in the glory, completely submitted in the righteousness, which is Christ. And we pray, my God, for all of the movements of the church that are of you, my God. We pray that they continue to flow and that they're refreshed and nourished by the Holy Spirit, that they're guided and directed, my God, by you. We pray against every distraction. The enemy has been weighing in heavily with an attempt to bring distraction. He's doing it through technology. He's doing it through music. He's doing it through entertainment, he's doing it through social pressure, and it's it's like a house on one against the elect, my God, but we pray against every distraction of our mind, we pray against everything that tries to rival the supremacy of Christ, and we pray, my God, that everybody that's coming into this call feels the love of Jesus, that no one comes leaving with a sense that they are not loved by God. My God, may your love continue to lift us up and may your glory continue to mature us. And may we continue to develop in you, in Jesus' mighty name. And once again, the body of Christ says, can we get an amen in the house of the Lord? Hallelujah. Can you join us with an amen? Amen. 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 Praise God. Glory to God. Saints, I want to share, like as we talked yesterday, about the wilderness. This is day nine, and you know, we're in the wilderness, right? And, and a lot of people think wilderness is a place of isolation. But yesterday we found out wilderness is a place of community for those who are the elect of God. It's a place not only of isolation, but of community. Christ was in the wilderness with the Holy Spirit and the Father. And that's the only peers that he had, okay? Um, and so he had to be in the wilderness with them. And, uh, you know, what the nation of Israel was in the wilderness with each other. They, they were in the wilderness, but it was all the people of the tribe. It wasn't just one member of the tribe. It was the entire tribe that was in the wilderness. So the entire bride was in the wilderness. And so to speak, that bride also symbolizes us, the church, and so, in a sense, we are corporately entering into this wilderness experience in order to grow in our understanding of love. And we know that Christ said to them, we talked about this yesterday, that Christ had given his disciples near the very end of his ministry this new command. But was it really a new command? He gave them a new command because it had not become an obvious command of the law. The law was supposed to birth love. And so if the law, if written on paper and stone and made without the intent of operating with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, was supposed to engender love in the Jews, how much more after Pentecost 33 CE should the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit engender love in us? Yet we find ourselves also needing to hear about this new command. Okay, 
He says, I give you a new command. And John later, after stating that Jesus said that in the gospel, John later in his letter actually said, I give you a new command, but it's not really a new command. It's an old command, but I give it to you as a new command, love one another. And so today we're going to carry on on that ministering word about love. What does it mean when it says that the world will know that you are our disciple, you are my disciples by the way you love one another. What does this word love really mean? And we're going to take it even further because he said they would know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. But he also actually calls you to love the world because he says, I want you to love as I love. And Christ loved and died for the entire world. Praise God. And so I'm going to read a series of scriptures and I'm going to highlight some points. Now, you've heard of these scriptures before. And the, temp the temptation is when you've heard a scripture before to kind of get what I like to refer to as familiarity disease, meaning I'm already familiar with the scripture. So I already know the point you're going to drive to. And you kind of easily get distracted because you kind of already know what this word means. But I'm going to be dealing with some sub points. So pay close attention because you may understand the main point and maybe you didn't catch the subtleties of some of the sub points that the scripture was making. So first, we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 11. And it talks about this ministry of reconciliation. So it says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men, meaning this is not just for me. Part of receiving this message of God is that I want that, that, that I want to give it to others. Since we since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. And so here's Paul talking to the Corinthian church and saying, "Who we are in God is plain to God." But we hope that your conscience is able to see what God sees about us. See, can you say this in your walk? He says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now, what he's, what he's trying to emphasize here is that there are some people who are focusing on the law and the legalistic aspects of the law and the purity of the law and the divineness of the law as it is to convict souls about sin and as it pertains to holiness. But Paul is saying, listen, these guys may be taking pride in the written code, but I need you to see my heart on the matter. Santo, glory to God, hallelujah. I need you to look at my heart on the matter. I hope God, it's plain to God, our motives, our intentions, our heart on the matter. But we hope it's also plain to you. We want you to be able to boast in the love of God, the spirit and the love of God. We want you to be able to boast in the spirit of the love of God. Right? But not on the basis of a written code, but on a basis of a heart condition. Now, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. 
For Christ's love compels us. You see, it's not a it's not a duty to love your neighbor. It's a it's a compulsion because if you've embraced Christ's love properly, this shouldn't be theological or knowledge. This should become a heart condition. Because we are convinced that one died for all. Because we're convinced of the salvation of Christ. Therefore, all have died with him. All have this potential. And he died for all. Now, remember, we're called to love as Christ loved, and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, this is his appeal to them. This is him talking to him about the ministry of reconciliation in you as a disciple of Christ Yeshua are being molded into the consciousness of Christ so that you can participate in this ministry of reconciliation. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So that means if you're a disciple, I'm not going to look at you from a worldly point of view because you're already a Christian. I'm going to look at you from a spiritual point of view. But even if you are in the world, I will not view you as someone from the world from a worldly perspective. I would now enlist you in my soul. I will enlist you in my heart as part of this ministry of reconciliation because I am convinced that Christ also died for you. And so I am compelled to try to win you for God because I am convinced that Christ died for you also. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation and the old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us. Now, a lot of us like to refer to ourselves as ambassadors, but Paul was not referring to all Christians as ambassadors. He was talking about the ones who were actually actively involved in the seeking and saving of the lost, those who were participating in the ministry of reconciliation. A lot of people think the word ambassador is synonymous with the word Christian, but that is not true. Paul was not calling all Christians ambassadors. He was referring to himself and those with, who worked with him in ministry. That God had, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now he's saying committed to us, it could be taken as he was including the Corinthian church, but I would like to tell you that I believe he was not, he was not including the, uh, the, the Corinthian church. He was referring to those who were in the authentic ministry of seeking and saving the lost. And he was comparing himself to those who were otherwise super fine apostles who wanted to make sure everybody was in proper obedience to the law but wasn't very much considering the heart condition and the heart posture of love. And so he says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of 
God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Have you, in the spirit, adopted the role of ambassador, a minister of the reconciliation? We've got a lot of knowledge of Christ. We talked about this before. We've got a lot of wisdom about Christ. We have a lot of knowledge, theological knowledge and theological wisdom. But do we have the heart of a minister of the reconciliation? Do we see a soul and see their potential in God, saved or unsaved, friend or foe? Are we here not representing ourselves, but representing Christ in love for all souls? Because we are convinced that Christ died for all and therefore all died in him. And all you have to do is accept it and receive it and you shall be saved. Do you feel compelled? Do you feel a compulsion to love for the sake of the salvation and the maintaining of the salvation of souls? This is the love of God. And this is the love that Christ has called us to. Let's look at another set of scriptures and we're going to go over to Luke chapter uh, 10. Okay. Luke chapter 10. We're in Luke 10 and we're going to start at the 25th verse. And it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, he was an expert in the law. And some of us are expert in Christianity. We're experts in Christianity. Experts. But what's the heart condition? Where's our heart on the matter of souls? You know, I don't believe that uh, our ministry is the only effective ministry in God. But I'm not anxious that anyone leave. I don't take lightly anyone's departure from fellowship with us. Why? Because I'm concerned about their overall well-being, that they otherwise would end up in some sort of righteous fellowship. And if they do end up in some sort of righteous fellowship, then I'm at peace because of the ministry of reconciliation, the concern for their soul, not for the concern of my ability to boast in numbers, and not for my concern to have somebody co-opt me on some special knowledge that I might claim to have, but from the heart of a right conscience and a right spirit, an ambassador to Christ Jesus. And see, we need to get past this being an expert of the law. But he says to him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And this is the beautiful thing. Jesus is asking him, you just, you read the law. You're an expert in the law. You know, all 630 some odd edicts of the law. You're an expert on the law. Now, sum it up for me. How do you read the law? He answered, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole strength, and with your whole mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there are 630 some odd edicts of the law. This man is an expert on the law. By the time of his living, they not only had the law, but they had the interpretations of various great men of God 
who expounded upon the law to give their own commentary on the law. So an expert on the law not only knew the law, but he also knew all the prevailing opinions about how those laws needed to be interpreted. And he summed it all up with one word in two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. Now Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. He didn't say obey 630 some odd He didn't say don't obey them either. But he didn't say obey them. He said they're all sum up to one fundamental truth. I'm calling you to love. First to love me and then to love your neighbor as yourself. But this expert alone wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he should have just left it where it was before, and he would have been eternally left in scripture as a wise man of God. But trying to justify his lovelessness in certain areas of his existence, because the spirit had already testified that he didn't really love his neighbor as himself completely, because there were some neighbors he wasn't loving. In reply, Jesus said, Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite who had come to that place saw him and passed by on the other side as well. But now this Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine on him. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to the inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you and any extra expenses that you might have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? That's where the Lord replied, what have had mercy on him? Jesus told him, go, do likewise. Now, let's examine this thing here. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was a Jew. Okay? This Jewish man fell into the hands of robbers. Now, they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So this is not a good appearance. A priest, who's also a Jew, did not want anything to do with the man because that man could have made him ceremonially unclean if he actually was dead, okay? And so the priest, not wanting to get himself intertwined in it, walked to the side. A Levite, who is also a Jew, did the same. Now a Samaritan, and Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans, saw the man and had pity on him. Now, who was the Samaritan? Samaritans are, for lack of a better term, bastardized Jews, whom the Jews no longer don't respect as Jews. And they're in like a sharp disagreement about the role that Samaritans play in the righteousness of God. Samaritans claim to be Jews, descendants of Abraham, while the Jews claim the Samaritans have nothing to do with being Jews. And so the Jews cannot stand the Samaritans. They might think less of the Samaritans than they think of a heathen. Because a heathen doesn't act like 
or play like he's a descendant of Abraham. He's just a heathen, but a pagan. But a Samaritan is actually claiming to be part of our tribe when really we don't think they are. Sort of like the difference between leather and a plastic coat. When I was a kid, you didn't dare walk around with imitation leather. You better off wearing a wool coat. Okay, you come in with one of them, what we used to call pleathers, and everybody would pick at you. You, you could wear a wool coat, nobody would pick at you, but you bring a pleather and people would pick at you. See, because people would just, they, listen, it ain't leather, it ain't leather. Don't try to make it leather when it ain't leather, right? And for those of you who grew up in the generation that I grew up in, you kind of can relate. For those of you who can't, I'm sorry, I used the analogy that came to mind. So, in a real sense, the Samaritans were pleathers, and the Jews considered themselves leather, and they couldn't stand the Samaritans. And they consider the pagans a wool coat. It just ain't us, okay? But the pleather's trying to look like us or be like us or claim to be a part of us or being something like us when we really don't think they're anything like us. Yet this Samaritan felt pity on this soul because it was a soul. Regardless of whether or not he was a Jew or not a Jew, this Samaritan had the capacity to love this man as he loved himself, even though the man, when he probably got better, wouldn't probably even want to talk to Samaritan because Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Think about it. How do you love your enemies and those who don't favor you or those who don't respect you? Are you quite okay with them going to hell because after all i tried to help them but they don't want to show me no respect so if they end up in the lake of fire oh well more wood for the burning or do you have the heart of this samaritan and so are you the heart if you have the heart of this samaritan do you love your neighbor as yourself or are you an expert in the law you see, we have that potentiality of sliding into a condition where we feel good about our Christianity while not having the heart of a minister of reconciliation. One last set of scriptures and then we'll close. Luke chapter 15, I'm going to start in verse 11. And it says, Jesus continued, it was a man who had two sons. Now, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the young son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered away his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. No one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father's house and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. 
while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. And <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry, saints. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. He came near the house. He heard the music and dancing. Called out to one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he is home, back, safe, and sound. Now the older brother became angry. Wait, wasn't that his younger brother? Didn't care about that, did he? The younger brother became angry. Stop. The older brother became angry. Stop. The older brother became angry. Stop. And we're going to get this. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And his father went out to plead with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never and never disobeyed any of your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you kill the fat and calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. It was lost and he was found. Now, most of the people focus this, this, this whole parable on the parable of the lost son. I contend that the most significant part of this parable is not the parable of the lost son. I contend that when Christ gave this parable, he was not giving the parable because of the lost son. He was giving the parable because of the angry older brother who couldn't find it in his heart to share the love of his father's heart, to have the heart of the ministry of reconciliation and rejoice at the salvation of his little brother. That's his brother. Older brothers have an obligation to younger brothers to mentor them, to nurture them, to protect them. He lost all of that. He had no regard for his young brother. Yet he refused to share the heart of the father in the ministry of reconciliation. And some of us, sadly, come on now, brace yourself. Some of us, sadly, were the prodigal son, right? Because God found us squandering away our existence, right? Get in the church, get sanctified, justified, I like to say holy-fied, and then somehow forget where they came from and start acting like the older brother right up in the church. Because they don't understand the parable of the lost son. See, the parable of the lost son was not about the lost son. It was about the older brother. 
for Christ searches to and fro to find the lost. And all of us were lost. And so these experts of the law, these geniuses in interpretation of theological wisdom, never got the point of having the right heart condition. It is true that he's exploiting grace, but I'm still a minister of reconciliation. It is true that, right, the lost son, right, he squandered all of his money on prostitutes and wild living. It is true that I've shared my faith with this person before and they've laughed it off. But I'm still a minister of reconciliation. It is true that many in this age are loveless and have no regard for God, are ungrateful and shameful in a lot of their ways of thinking and being. These things are all true. That a great percentage of this world functions like the prodigal son. The prodigal son wants their inheritance before the father dies. That's an insult. If you understand Judaism, when he said, Father, give me my inheritance, he was basically saying, I can't wait for you to die to get my inheritance. Give me my share now. The boy didn't have a share until his father died. But his father understood what he said. His father gave him his share. And so, too, many on this earth exploit God's love and God's grace. And they demand their share. And then they squander it on wild living. But are we of the type who rejoice as ministers of the reconciliation in their return home? Or are we of the type that sneer and raise our eyebrows and lift our nose? Oh, they're back again. Oh, okay, well, let's see how long they stay this time. I don't know why everybody's getting so excited because this is all crocodile tears. Let us be careful. For Christ said in the last days, the love of the greater number would grow cold due to the increase of lawlessness. So saints, lawlessness increases. And as lawlessness increases, some many Christians will fall away because they start resenting being ministers of reconciliation in an adulterous, wicked world. But Christ calls us to maintain this love to the end or our end, which each, which one, whichever one comes first. Father Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your special name among men. May our heart posture be changed. May our heart condition be changed in this wilderness. May we learn to love and to love each one regardless. We pray, Father God, for wisdom and how to administer that love. We pray for wisdom for how to effectively love. We don't want to be enablers. We don't want to throw pearls before pigs. So we need wisdom and maturation so that this love is administered properly for the salvation of the souls. We pray these things, Father, we ask for forgiveness for any lovelessness of the past. May we draw a line in the dirt today and make a spiritual marker in our existence to go forth as ambassadors of Christ Jesus. We thank you, my God, and we continue to pray these things. In Jesus' mighty name. And the body of Christ says, can we get an amen in the house of the Lord?
Amen. 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 Praise God. Have a great morning, saints. You all too.